Welcome back, listeners, to Agile Disrupted, a podcast for the people in the trenches of Agile, where voices are heard and stories are shared. You have your host, Tabby, which is me. We have MC. Aloha. Aloha, MC. And we got our guest speaker today, Jake Tyndall. Hey, hey. Thanks for joining us, Jake. How's it going? I'm good. Long week, but got a lot done and I'm ready for the weekend. Hey, I hear that. That's what Fridays are for. <laughs> All right. So we are super excited to have Jake with us today because we we got we got a special episode today. It's called the customer haha. Because the haha part is how we feel about customers. Because we're because we're all customers in a sense. So the synopsis I'm gonna give you guys to to set us up. So I wanna ask you both to to think about some of the elements and questions I'm gonna ask you. As professionals in the agile realm. How do you all explain your role to your friends and family? Hell, like even, even a complete stranger. Like when you share your official title as Scrum Master, Product Owner, Developer, Agile Consultant, typically anyone who doesn't work in the Agile space doesn't know what the fuck you're talking about. So we always like pause for a brief moment to gather ourselves and figure out a way to explain what our role is in a way that makes sense to our audience. And one way or another, you find yourself explaining the product or the business that you support. And that's the kicker. We all have a role to play when it comes to the multidimensional realm that is product management. And every single human being on this earth serves a role in product. Whether you're a founder, a builder, or a customer, maybe maybe not everyone in this world has experienced what it takes to be a founder or and or a builder, but there isn't a fortunate human being on this earth that hasn't been a customer to an existing or a former product. So let me ask you this, Jake, how would you explain the role of the customer of a product and its importance to someone? What stories would you tell? Sure. So I would say that my role is to understand customers better than anyone else on the team and to bring that level of understanding and the, the problems that our customers face to the team in some sort of prioritized way so that we're building the right thing to solve that problem. Um, in product management, I, I feel like that's just the, the strongest contribution is that customer understanding. And you should be bringing the rest of the team along and the, the customer should be at the forefront of everything you do and no matter what your role is. However, the product person has to be the point person on that because you're trusting them with prioritization. And mm -hmm. again, it, whatever you're building, whatever whatever solution you're providing for this this customer, uh, the product person has to be the one that's accountable for that. And to be accountable for that, you have to have that deep level of under, understanding. How would you, um, like if you were to, let's say you're, you're on a subway and like a person's just trying to get to know you, who knows, they find you cute and they're like, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a director of product. Uh, like, and they, they just don't know what that means. How would you explain like the importance of the customer of a product? Like what story would you share? Like what, what business comes to mind if you were to illustrate a story for them? I would say, I, I think to answer your question in twofold, I would say my role now, um, you mentioned that director of product role is that I'm here to now focus on like how we're scaling that understanding of the customer, how we're scaling the problem identification and solutioning. Um, Cause I have, I have product owners and product managers that are now on my team and it's my job to empower them as their, as their leader, mentor and coach um, and make sure that as an organization, we're putting ourselves in the right, right process, the right cadence to do that. Um, when I think of, of great, maybe customer empathy or understanding, um, we joked earlier before we, we hit the record button <laughs> about Chick-fil-A. Uh, yes. Chick-fil-A oh is, is just one of those that's like on the top of everyone's mind. It's the easy one to point to. So I'll actually share in this, you know, COVID world where 
uh, Chick-fil-A has now had to innovate and adapt as well. Sure, they had, you know, one of the best apps in the app store for for food at the time, but now mm-hmm. they're layering on delivery. And how do you ensure a certain level of quality, even through delivery? Um, it's top of mind for me because I had Chick-fil-A for lunch, actually. And yeah, there you go. in that in that delivery, they actually had a like a piece of tape over the bag. But not only was that tape so that, you know, I have certain trust and that it hasn't been tampered with or anything by the delivery person, but it even had like a, a, a perforated red, uh, a prefer, can't say the word, a pre-broken edge. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You, you covered it. <laughs> Podcast, right? <laughs> uh, that, that I could easily open the bag, but I could tell that it hadn't been opened before. I think yeah. if you look at again, I'm, I'm rooting good products in that customer empathy and understanding is their customer mm-hmm. was in a different location. Their customer wasn't in the dining room and they weren't in the drive-thru. So with a customer in a different location, how do we need to adapt? This is it's still the same great chicken. Yep, it's <laughs> but chicken. <laughs> it's, it's now maybe optimized for this new customer development that they had. I love that. I love that story. I love that story because like, um, it's like for me, right? I've, I've got my own business. I got customers that use my app. And we brought a new one on the other day and they're asking questions about, well, how do I get support? Do I always have to text you? And I was like, no, it's built right into the app. And what's mm. funny is uh, another customer we had onboarded about a month ago, um, they used the chat and I had no idea that they thought when they use the chat, they have to leave it open to get responses. So then she messages me, hey, can I leave the chat and keep doing business or do I have to wait for you to respond? And I was like, oh God. So it's, it's funny how you talk about like the tape and the perforated edge and it's literally like it's everything you need to know is shoved in your face to say yeah. this is safe, it hasn't been tampered with. But then it's interesting how like, and we didn't build the chat app, it's a third party integration, but it's interesting how some sometimes things like that get missed, right? When it comes to the software side of things. Hardware, it's really easy, it's in your face. But for software, I think sometimes it can get missed. Yeah, exactly. And we try to keep those references to to products that have a meaningful impact in our day-to-day lives. And I know that gets pretty difficult to translate when it comes to software. And at, I mean, at the end of software, any product it serves the people. And a lot of a lot of principles in Agile focus on the people because we're building things that's for the people. And I love that you, you mentioned Chick-fil-A because, <laughs> I mean, the Chick-fil-A brand has its own political stance, right? So there's some people who, who choose not to eat Chick-fil-A just because of where they stand in politics. But... If you had to think about service, like Chick-fil-A has turned it, turned into its own metaphor for service. Like that there's so many fast food restaurants out there that serve chicken. You got Bojangles, you got you got the works. But Chick-fil-A is there for its bread and for its service. And just, just because people can immediately recognize it. Their menu, some people just memorize, memorize their menu. I mean, I, I, I can speak for those people because I used to be that daily person that got her spicy chicken biscuit at 6 a.m. in the morning until they removed it from the menu. And I'm just like, I was pissed. So I was a loyal, loyal customer. So, um, But I, I remained a customer um, just because of the, the food. Um, I, I try not to mix in politics too much with, with branding. But I'll share with you guys a quote um, that Francis Brown uh, mentioned um, he's the product development manager at, at Alaska Airlines. He says that at the heart of every product person, there is a desire to make someone's life easier or simpler. If we listen to the customer and give them what they need, 
they'll reciprocate with love and loyalty to your brand. And that's where branding and brand loyalty kicks in. And branding, brand loyalty is hilarious. Like I, I think it's hysterical. I have so many like stories and personas that I could define for brand loyalty. And Apple comes to mind. I did just immediately, just that ridiculous line that's at the door. And people don't even know if it's going to be a, a great phone. They just don't know. They just want to test it. So what are some examples of brand loyalty that you guys want to share? It doesn't even matter if it's hysterical. I just, it's a, a very interesting concept be going into the psychology of the customer so for me on the hysterical end of the spectrum yeah. like i try to be thrifty and and be cognizant of what i'm spending money on and you know i buy off brand as much as i can mm -hmm. um but yeah you're not bringing peanut butter in my house that's not jiff <laughs> like, it's just my god happening <laughs> um so you talk about brand loyalty like loyal to a fault like it's not happening yeah Oh, um, I can I can taste the difference in any other brand. It's not happening. <laughs> um, but it's funny. So you talk about like, so I have that brand loyalty, right? I buy the same type of peanut butter every time. But every yeah. now and then, Jif will come out with a different product. And it's it's Jif, but it might be they had cereal a few years ago, um, which was actually pretty good, but they, they got rid of it. I, just, I guess it just didn't sell. But yeah. when I see them come out with other products, I don't hesitate to try it. Right. So again, uh, when we were talking before the pod, we were talking about um, crossing the chasm and things like that. I'm already on the other side. So as soon as they bring another product out, there's no trying to convince me to jump in. I'm going to be like, hell yeah, that's Jif. I'm let me give it a shot. Like without question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm trying to think of a brand that I have, I have a love hate relationship with. And I think you guys can, can kind of relate. So my love hate relationship is with Ikea. And I can tell you why, like their website is beautiful. It is so user-friendly. It's so easy to just click and buy and their quality again, very, very good quality, reasonable. But when you get the box and you get the directions, it's like, they don't even think about the customer. Like the, it's in six different languages, which I understand it's all like, it, it's, it's a product that serves globally. I, I get it, but it's not user-friendly. Like you're, you're getting through the instructions and what was supposed to take 10 minutes, maybe? To, to put a chair together took two hours. And I'm just translating from a tabby scale of putting furniture together. So I can't speak for other customers, but I'm just saying. So what are your thoughts there on um, the the customer versus the user experience, Jake? Uh, so I'll actually, I'll, I'll double down on this, on this Ikea idea. All right, here <laughs> um, we go. <laughs> and I'll also loop back just once to that quote that you said is, uh, if we listen to the customer and give them what they need, it's not necessarily what they want. And that's a yeah. really hard thing in product when you're sitting in front of a customer, a user, and you, you hear this voice and, and they're telling you exactly what they want. And you, you might hear that once, you might hear it a hundred times, you might hear it a thousand times, but it's mm -hmm. our job to distill those findings and to understand the underlying needs. I would imagine that you still go back to Ikea, not because you need and really easy assembly, you need a stylish piece of furniture at a decent cost. You don't yeah. want necessarily to have to take two hours to assemble it, but you're okay with that little bit of friction to get the net benefit. And so the need is actually the, the cost they're able to provide because they don't do the assembly themselves. And so it's just funny how like th these very complex business models and customer experiences come together where again, you have to address that, that true underlying need, even if it almost means balancing various attributes of your product. Yeah, definitely. And you totally nailed it. Cause I still go to Ikea. 
Like that, that's why I call it a love-hate relationship. Like the quality is there and it's just so easy to pick and choose. They don't overwhelm you with options, um, unlike some places. So it, they actually put in a loophole because they have a, a business agreement with TaskRabbit. So you can hire someone else to do the, the putting together for you. So I'm like, yeah, I see you, Ike. I see what you're doing. So it that's the model I think of, um, like something that's both welcomed by the end user and the customer. But I want to bring that topic too, because they're not always the same person. So MC, let me ask you, this what do you think is the difference between the customer and the end user yeah it's funny because i think a lot a lot a lot of product people don't understand it they they just see it as like one target to shoot for one persona yep. right but you might have people that use your app or your service and it's like cool i'm glad they're using it hey thanks for giving me some feedback you're not really who i'm going for um, and, and the customers who you're actually going for right and that's uh, to me i see that as the difference between the end user and, and, and um, the target user, right? If that, if that was how you asked the question, right? Where yeah. someone could just use it and they could be a user, but an, an end user. But if I'm specifically targeting Jake and people like Jake to use my app, that's my target end user. Yeah. And when you think of end user and customers, like the customer commits to your product, like whether it's their data or your money or your time. And people automatically assume that the customer is someone who is in charge of the pocketbook, but that's not necessarily true. You have buyers and you have consumers. There's people who, who are just buyers. They just, they, they buy products, they buy software, and maybe they bought it for their organization. Maybe they bought it for their team. And the team are the consumers of a product that they did not pay for. And those elements are so important because there's this statistic of like 90% of businesses fail in the first three years, right? That every, everyone knows that. And when you realize that you have to be really intentional about your product market. So what does product market fit mean to you guys? I'm curious. So I would say um, to, to answer that is looking at whether you call them users, customers, stakeholders, buyers. Um, mm -hmm. it, I think the important thing is that sometimes you mentioned there are the same person, but sometimes there are many people who are receiving some sort of experience that you, you directly control and should cater to those those different stakeholders along the way. Like let's maybe group all of them as stakeholders, user being one, customer mm -hmm. being one, buyer being one, and, and so forth. Uh, to me, product market fit is where we, we talked earlier about this crossing the chasm is that you you've identified a need, you've solved a problem, and you're starting mm -hmm. to gain traction in maybe it's the innovators or the early adopters. But to cross that chasm, you have to you have to scale the market. You have to be able to prove that that's not just a niche offering. Uh, unless that, of course, is your business model, which we'll get into later. I don't want to don't want to get off topic too much here, but <laughs> I think the the important thing is that you you tap into what what's often referred to as a total addressable market and marketing, and that you you've assessed that there's an opportunity there by scale and by size, and that you're meeting the needs of enough people that those people tell more people, or that those people give you enough insight to optimize and iterate for the masses. Um, and again, I'm being very general and now just calling them people rather than users or customers, yeah. um, because I do think like the, the starkest example in my mind is the user of social media versus the customer of an advertising company. Mm. Um, that's that's a really easy way to break it down is I'm not paying to use Facebook, but someone is monetizing my data. Someone is monetizing my activity and time on there. And so for, for that is, again, the, the builders of Facebook always have to design with that end customer and the end user in mind and they have different motivations they have different uh needs and you have to you have to consider those and, and solution towards that and again do it in a way that you reach product market fit by establishing an opportunity 
and executing well enough to gain that market share. Yeah, definitely. And you you mentioned how how important it is for the product to be unique and competitive towards other products out there that exist. And I honestly see that being a, a big falling point because it it's so competitive out there. When you when you feel passionate about a, a specific product and you're vouching for it, you really have to constantly have this learning mindset. And you, you have like as a as a product owner, whether you're that's your official title or unofficial title for your product. If you have a, like let's say a side gig or something, when you're playing product owner, you have to be the master of learning from your customer. And it, the learning is a continuous process. And I look at the quote by Bill Gates, like your most unhappy customers are your greatest source of learning. And it's not about just saying yes to every one of their problems. It's about understanding their needs and learning from it and testing a few prototypes and seeing if this is if this is the need what do you guys think like the the, the constant learning process of being a product owner i think that's difficult to master i, I agree I, I mean i know at least me personally i learned this the hard way right so we we sold our, our software to to a retail shop and we were buddy buddy super chummy with the owners right we were friends with them on facebook they're advocates for the industry everything was going great but the owners were never in the store. So whenever we'd reach out to the owner, hey, how's everything going? Everything is great. Well, it turns mm -hmm. out the cashiers hated a couple different parts of the functionality. And we just, mm -hmm. we had no idea. So you talk about um, like sort of that, that product market fit, right? It's that piece that sets you apart a little bit. Yeah. But then when you talk about right where we're at now, our user, or our, how do I phrase this? Our customer was the owner, but our user was you know the shopkeep right the the salesperson that was in the store the whole time so i had to build and sell a certain way to get the owner to sign the contract but then i had the squeaky wheel that i had to keep happy was actually the salesperson in the store using the software every day because what wound up blowing up in our face was the salesperson just kept complaining and kept complaining and kept complaining uh, and eventually yeah. the owner finally just like word vomits all these frustrations and it's like but every time we talk to you, you say you're good well, you, so it's interesting that I, I had to learn all of that the hard way. So now one of the things that I do, I onboard a new customer and I was actually messaging with her the other day. We onboarded the mother and the daughter works in the store and the daughter's like messaging me constantly. And then I was just like, you know what? Let me reach back out and just check on her. So I said, hey, how's everything going today? We had fixed a bug. Everything's great. Cool. And then I waited like an hour and intentionally followed up with like, hey, did you know? And I just dropped in a random feature that I know people like and explained, yeah. you know, a couple nuances and and next thing I know now there's just like little messages back and forth and haha -ha jokes and a couple gifts because she's she's about my age, so now I'm like okay cool. So at this point I've like formed a a quasi bond with my mm -hmm. user who's going to then influence the customer at the end of the day. Exactly. That also ties into why. And uh, MC, I know I know you're just going to roll your eyes because I don't have any time to talk about the why statement. So here, here we go. Get ready. So when when you guys think about a sales call. Like whether you're just walking around in the mall and there's all these vendors trying to like get your attention, they're trying to sell you something, or you're you're at the office and a specific company has a specific sales pitch and you have to listen in on the sales call. I think the psychology behind sales ties very well with the customer because you gotta own your why. So I wanna ask you guys, what is loyalty as a customer? Who like what product are you the most loyal to right now? in this given moment. If you had to think about your, like your most loyalty to a product in your life that is detrimental to your day-to-day -day lives. I would say Amazon. <laughs> I <have> a, <laughs> some people yes. might refer to as a problem. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a problem. There is yeah. no judgment here. <laughs> I, uh, the, the problem they solve for me is just the, the convenience and selection. Um, 
Mm -hmm. You know, price, price is a motivator. Sure. I might cross shop on an expensive item, but for the yeah. most part, I need something. I think about it could be toothpaste, could be toilet paper, could be new shoes, could be a new watch, <laughs> could be anything. Yeah. Um, if I have the opportunity to, to, to select where I'm going to purchase that nine out of 10 times, 99 out of a hundred times, it's going to be <laughs> Amazon. Um, and to me, again, it's just that, that, that loyalty has been built over a long time of earning my trust, having a really easy returns process, um, being able to offer a selection at a decent price, those, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, domination that, uh, Amazon has in the market is, is, isn't going away. Um, a lot of times people say like, Oh, what about the small business? And I think Amazon, if you look at their marketplace has created an outlet for a lot of small businesses to yeah. enter a new channel and go direct to consumer and, and e-commerce. Um, that being said, Amazon didn't, you know, set out to just ruin all of small business. They set out to obsess over the customer and you hear it in almost every time Bezos speaks publicly about you know, oh, the yes. way they think and the leadership principles of Amazon. Um, which I think are fantastic, by the way. It's uh, it's an it's a customer obsession that has forced this market domination that we're seeing. And unfortunately, small businesses had the opportunity to obsess over the customer, but mm -hmm. many small businesses reach a certain level of scale. And in that in that uh, story you just shared, maybe the owner is a little bit aloof. Maybe they're not really plugged in. They're not they're not in the store on a day to day basis talking to the customers. I've seen that right. too many times in small business. So. For the small businesses that are still thinking and operating in those ways, of course, Amazon's taking over, but they've they've solved that problem for a lot of people. And that customer obsession, the uh, assortment and the the trust that they've built with me have really kept my market. Yeah. And just think about how like Amazon, like I remember I was in college and Amazon was just a bookstore. And when they like posted, you, you can now buy toilet paper on Amazon.com. I thought it was a joke. Like, what exactly are they doing? Why are they selling toilet paper on a books, bookstore website? And their customer obsession started from the very beginning. And that that learning curve is phenomenal. And like, I just, I love hearing um, those stories of what it took for them to get to where they were to where they are now. MC, you look like you're, you're about to hear something. Yeah, yeah. Just on the loyalty side of things. Um, I think for me, it's the, the, the product that I'm loyal to a fault to is, is my phone, Android. Yes. Um, I was going to say that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I know so many, like I use a MacBook to work on, you know, my app that we built is on an iPad. I will never work on a windows machine again. <laughs> um, I just love working on my MacBook, but I will never get rid of my Android phone. Mm. And I think it's because my mentality at least is, I love flexibility and I love choices and I love to do whatever I want. And the joke that I always throw at people when, when they make fun of me for an Android, I'm like, yeah, but can you play a hacked version of Pokemon on your phone where you're not catching Pokemon, but you're catching Dragon Ball Z characters? And they oh look at God. me like I'm crazy. You can't do that on an iPhone because you can't sideload hacked apps. So I just love the flexibility. I can change my background, move everything around, do whatever I want. And my screen's never cracked because I feel like every iPhone you know what? in the world's screen is cracked. Well, we, we don't need to get into that right now. Okay. Like <laughs> there's some people who can't hold on to their iPhone. But... I'm just, an, I'm just a nerd, <laughs> but I, I just, I, I, and just the way I approach my life and the way I work with all the products that I buy, I like the flexibility. I want to be able to move things around and change it however I want for that given day. And for my phone, I can do whatever I want on my phone here. And I know for a fact, like iPhones are a lot more locked down. Um, but some people love that. They're like, I just turn it on and I just use it. I don't have to change settings. I don't have to do anything at all. I just, it exactly. just works for me. 
I like yeah, to take works, period. <laughs> I just my phone exactly. works very well. But I just like to tinker. He likes to tinker. I do not like to tinker. Because you know what happens? When you start drinking and you go to the bar and your phone starts tinkering for you and you can't even get to the app where you're trying to call an Uber. Okay. So I'm I'm not speaking from experience, but I there's some there's some user personas out there that do not like to tinker. So I I agree with you, MC though. If I had to think about brand loyalty and just product loyalty, it's my phone. My phone is like the heartbeat of my life. Like I do all of my finances on there, I do all my socializing, and we're in COVID times but like my biggest social relationship is with my phone right now so you think about that and this podcast started from my phone and you think about that emotional sentiment like a product that serves to give you functionality of what used to be a phone call and when the first iphone came out and that that learning curve of when the first smartphone came out to where it is now it's a smartphone market and just looking at that trajectory. And something that I love about Apple commercials and Apple branding is the relationship you build with their products. Like you were you were a kid when you first got your, your first iPhone 3G and now you're a fully grown adult and you have like the latest iPhone and you're not competing. I mean, I guess some adults are still competing against iPhones. I'm not one of them. Like I'm not gonna stand in line for the next iPhone. I'll, I'll wait it out. And that's, that's, a, great, that's a great segue to um, adoption, right? And customers, Customers are our main priority for adoption. And the, the adoption part is the commitment because they transition from being an end user, testing something out, see if they like it to being a customer and actually committing to the product. You know what? I like this. I'm going to commit to this. I'm registering. Or I like this. I'm buying this product. Or I like this. I'm going to give this product my data. I'm now a Facebooker. So those are some some mindsets that I think of um, when it comes to adoption. But I guess everyone's heard of the, the technology adoption lifecycle. And some of the elements that they talk about is innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and I guess laggards. And laggards is such a weird word, by the way. I don't I don't particularly like saying that word. But what are some examples of innovators that you guys have seen with products? And like, what has that experience been? So on the innovator side, like I... In terms of the customers who you would who you'd quantify as an as an innovator, I look at myself, right? I wait until the Android build <laughs> three comes out. I see, I see you, Jake. I, we see um, you, Jake. <laughs> no, but I, I I wait until like the Android beta build public build three comes out because that at that point in time it's stable enough that you can mm. use it for everyday use with the understanding that some shit's going to be broken, like you can't use contactless payments. But I want to know what those new features are because when yeah. the next phone comes out and I, I inevitably upgrade or I upgrade my wife and she's like, oh my God, like the new version got rid of the buttons at the bottom. And she's like, what do I do? And I was like, oh, you just swipe up and to the right to switch apps. What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, I've been using this for six months. You just, you're, you know, so I, I dive head first Wow, you shamed her oh, for not being an innovator? Of course. Of course. <laughs> That's messed up. I'm like, how do you not know about this? It's been out for six months. Okay, we see you, Karen. <laughs> um, what about you, Jake? What do you think of um, for the the innovator persona? Sure. So I'll say you're in good company. Um, <laughs> I, I too have all the betas, and um, I always have. I've I've always even like as soon as it's available for developers, I've have had a developer account so that I could get it with the expectation that it's going to break. Um, mm -hmm. The innovator mindset is almost such that I want to participate. It's a participatory experience rather yeah. than more of a consumption experience. And I think that it breaking is almost part of the fun. Uh, it, it kind of, like there, there's something there. Um, when I think of innovators in 
in product management, especially for consumer products, is Reddit has really grown as being a, a place that you can engage with those innovators. They're people who care about it, who are talking about it. They're actively looking for a solution and they're, they're, they're just waiting to be engaged with. And if you can, again, somehow speak to them or, or maybe create some sort of like a user advisory board or something along those lines, not only can you get your product in their hands sooner and, and do maybe like a closed beta testing, uh, but you can learn so much from those innovators. Again, I'll go back to something I said a little earlier is you have to have that, that product discipline to know when you're talking about a want versus a true need is yes. an innovator will tell you a thousand features that you should build, but only yep. 10 of those would act, would ever be used by you know the majority of the market. And so that, that takes a lot of a lot of that product understanding to find product market fit for those features that can be inspired from an innovator while scaled to the rest of the population. I love that you mentioned that knowing the differences between the wants and the need. I think as human beings, we still struggle with it. Like, do I really need this? No, I'm going to justify just wanting it. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to go splurge on this thing that I don't need. So oh, as a, uh, on everything, um, but <laughs> <laughs> like as a product owner, you need to know the difference, but go ahead MC. No, I just, I just wanted to ask because I, I think that right there is one of the hardest things to do as a product person is to really suss out the needs and the wants. Um, so I wanted to ask Jake though, um, on, on that semi topic, you know, as a product person working with your customers, like what's one of the hardest parts of the job that you, that you would say? Um, I'm a people person more than I am a product person. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big product person. <laughs> but that's but, why you're a big product person. You're a people yes, person. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to hear, I want to hear real needs. Um, I, I want to understand what problem that person's solving, not with tech, but with the technology or with the immediate product, but like, I'll go back to Ikea. I love, I love having cyclical conversations. Yes, I'll go back Ikea. to Ikea. Here we go. <laughs> you need that chair or that furniture. Maybe you like the way it looks, but you need that because you're going to put a friend in it. <laughs> that creates <laughs> a social experiment. You're, yes. you're creating the fabric of your life with this piece of furniture. And that, yes. that degree of empathy and understanding for the user is, is where I go. So to answer the question is I work in FinTech and listening to our users means listening to people who sometimes are struggling and sometimes they're living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, they, they're about to lose their, their house or their apartment because they can't afford to make that payment. Uh, or they're, they, they're in so far deep into debt and they have no idea how to get out of debt. The hard part about the job isn't necessarily hearing that. The hard part of the job is being very cognizant that I am also a part of a business and our business cannot solve the needs of all people. We have to address uh, enough of the need in enough of the market that we can we can also do it in a profitable way that is scalable to, to many people. Because um, I wanna build something for everyone. When you hear a user, you wanna be able to respond and say, you know what, give me, give me some time and I'll come back with a solution for you. But the, the hard part is balancing the feasibility of the technology, the desirability of the user, and the viability of the business. That, that triple constraint of design thinking is mm. the lens to which I see customer needs. And that's a really hard thing to do when you want to, as a human, help someone, but almost can't. Oh yeah, I knew we were gonna hit DVF at some point. Desirability, like viability and feasibility, because that's what it comes down to. We have a ton of wants, but it's not feasible, people. Like we'll, we'll break that down at a later time. And Can't please everyone. Nope. And you bring up a great point, Jake, because 
you talk about scalability many, many times. And sometimes the scalability of the customer, you you can't figure out the target customer for an MVP, like the cart and checkout. Um, a, a previous host of ours, Matt, he brought that up. Like, how do you figure out the target customer persona for the cart and checkout? It's everybody. That's what they say. And they couldn't figure that out. So in those kind of situations, what are some things you guys think of? Like when, when the customer mass population is so large, how do you actually test that this piece, this need is going to impact, make meaningful impact to these customers if the customer persona is so large? Yeah, I know. For, okay. <laughs> I think for, for, for my app, um, we, we try to focus on more of the masses, right? The, the everyday man. Right. Yeah. So, um, for instance, when we were building in, like um, adding a, a coupon to a specific product in the cart, right, we call it line item discounts, right? Buy mm -hmm. one, get one 20% off type of deals. Um, we tried to think through, okay, what's the easiest way to do this? And our initial approach to it was actually going to be you select the coupon and then you select, is this going to a product or to the full cart? And I was like, that's really easy, but I, it's, it's beyond a step in the process. So mm -hmm. I, I made a conscious design decision to say, let's bring that up in the process, right? So from a natural linear thinking, right? I've added a product to a cart. I add a discount to that product. And now I go through to add a discount to the whole cart separately. So I separated those two things. So it's almost like we made, a, made it a harder design, but we made it an easier process flow because I felt most people would think linearly like that. Add to cart, product discount, cart discount, payment. So I made it, it made a, a made it a harder UI because I thought the flow would fit the masses better. And it's funny every time I train someone on it, they're like, "Oh my god, this is so easy! I just tap it." I'm like, "Yep, just That's tap it. it." Yep, I did all this work to figure out DVF, and you just tap it. <laughs> but yeah, what about you, Jake? What do you think? Uh, so without getting too framework heavy, um, okay. I, I do want to talk about three things, and I'll try to illustrate them. Uh, with simplicity. There's a concept called value slicing and mm -hmm. being able to look at a journey and identify the, the pieces, all those steps that, that we just talked about a moment ago, this checkout process, you don't have to build the entire thing, the entire solution at mm. you know every level of all of the, the steps and the features and the widgets before you launch to a customer, before you start to identify that product market fit. And so, you know, it could be that, you know, you, you just work on two or three of the, the key components within that journey. And then once you learn from those two or three, then you layer on and get to four or five and six and seven. But you have to have some degree of the entire end-to-end -end value chain built, uh, mm -hmm. even if even if it's not real code, even if it's not <laughs> a real physical, tangible thing, like whatever that is, should be just enough of the the, the user's journey to validate the fact that they're interested in your solution. So again, a lot of buzzwords in that. Go check out mm -hmm. Open Practice Library. They have a lot of really good things out there. Um, yeah. I use it a lot. It's it's a really good website and value slicing is is that topic. The reason that I want to talk about that is the first of the three <laughs> is because that should help you identify what's referred to as an MVP. Um, many of us hear that, unfortunately, in our workplaces as just a really dumbed down feature. And that's not the definition of an MVP. Definition of an MVP is, is just some sort of experiment to validate a hypothesis proving that again, you're addressing some sort of need, that there's some sort of interest or desire from your user or customer. And so this could be like a like just a landing page of, of some sort of new offering. Kickstarter is a really good one that comes to mind. Kickstarter mm -hmm. is, is creating an MVP. Kickstarter is putting an idea out there to see if people will, will back it financially. 
Um, Using that type of like startup entrepreneurial mindset in the workplace could be as simple as, you know, meeting with, uh, let's say it's an internal user, you're just meeting with them to, you know, say, if I made this one thing better, would it, would it help you? Would it help you do your job? If it's an external customer or consumer, if, again, if I did this one thing, would you maybe use it if it looked like this? Maybe it's just like a Wizard of Oz uh, experiment where you put mm-hmm. it together a, a few pieces of material and you're actually doing all the quote unquote backend services yourself. There's so many ways to do an MVP. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I would just look up the, the whole entire body of work behind MVPs and learn more about that. But until you have an MVP, you've done some of that value slicing, you, can do, you, you can't really find that product market fit or measure it which is the third component I want to talk about. Um, yeah. the, the, the common metric for, for product market fit is referred to as like pirate metrics. Uh, it's mm-hmm. acqui- a- acquisition, activation, retention, referral, and revenue. And if you spell that out, it's R. <laughs> so it's referred to as the, as the pirate metric. It's really easy to remember. You, if you learn anything it. from this podcast, that's that's what you'll remember. I, I'm a customer. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> but the I, idea I is, yeah, <laughs> the idea there is these you know VCs and uh, angel investors, the folks that that are in this community, their entire days are just consuming ideas. They're consuming people who think they found product market fit and they have to be able to cut through the BS to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And so the, the R metrics allow you to measure your solution. Again, doesn't have to be the whole thing, could be just a part of it, but you should be able to start measuring some of those attributes to the point where you can say, we, we are starting to find product market fit. We are reducing our churn of how many people have signed up or how many people were interested and left. Those are like some really core fundamentals to product market fit and product management that I think, again, if I can wrap my very long-winded statement up, uh, <laughs> value slicing will give you a great MVP to go validate. And if you're measuring that with pirate metrics, you should be able to slice this to a point and learn. Love oh, that. man. Fantastic synopsis. Go ahead, yes. MC. <laughs> so, no, um, so you brought up uh, MVP, and uh, I, was, I was with a few friends last night, and we were discussing MVPs, and... I hate MVPs, or at least I hate what it's become and how yeah. organizations use them and view them. So I, um, Jake, like a, like our, our, our good friend Tim, um, I love uh, MMPs, minimum marketable product. And I think MMPs fit with an organization a lot better. So for those listening who don't know what it is, uh, minimum marketable product, right? And I say that, I describe that as what is the minimum feature set that you're willing to put out there and put your brand on it, right? To represent your company and represent as a product person, represent you as a person who practices this craft that you're willing to put your stamp on and put in front of someone to say, I'm, I think this is enough to be able to market to a customer um, so I can get feedback so I can build the right end result product. And I think, um, I think that just because of how organizations have used MVPs and to be mm-hmm. frank, bas- bastardized it, um, yep. I think MMPs fit an organization a little bit better because then now they can say, well, what am I willing to market to them? Because I think a lot of folks, they, they misconstrue the, the viable aspect of it all because yeah. you can, you can just as Jake described, you can do, if you have a five-step flow, you can do three steps really, really well. And the last two can be sticks and bubble gum or completely smoke and mirrors. And that's okay. I mean, how many product launches, I say that in air quotes, have we seen where, you see all this cool fancy shit about it and it's like oh man i can't wait to buy this and you click i'm interested and it's like cool we're glad that you're interested fill out your email we'll let you know when the product's available 
And it's not there. It's, it's completely smoke and mirrors, and it's an idea. I've gone through a website where it had multiple pages of all this description and all these screenshots and photos, and it looked amazing, and the product wasn't even built. It was nope. all a test. It was a test. And that I like that you bring MMP, MC, because you bring in the marketable, marketable part, and people take that for granted so many times. And I, I think about that because there is recently, a, a I guess, a water flosser, uh, released and it's like this really magical water flosser it's not it's not made yet but they have my email address because it looks neat because the water flossers out there right now just suck okay I'm, I'm just gonna put that out there and i hate flossing so <laughs> that's a perfect example right there and i think about like we put so much work into mvp but when we ask the question, who is it for like who is the target customer we we design this persona and we, we we look into all the intricate details of this persona because we're trying to build that empathy because without that empathy you don't know the need you need to know those details to know that empathy to know that need to know to know if this hypothesis that you have that you're about to experiment with is is doable and it puts a lot on that target customer's shoulders but that's why you were intentional in the first place about that target customer. But um, I'm going to put in one more one more question for you guys because we are wrapping for time. Uh, this has been a fantastic, glorious, well-formed format for, for our customers. Um, what is what is a movie that you think of when it comes to sales and customers? Because I got one in mind, but it's it's pretty, pretty comical. Um, I'll share mine. So I think of The Wizard of Oz and I think of Dorothy and trying to ask like, who's the person behind the curtain? And she just gets told, don't, don't worry about that person. Okay. Like, wh why wouldn't, I, I want to know who's, who's built, like, who's making my life harder. Like, I want to know who's behind that curtain. And it turns out it wasn't even who this person was glorified to be. And I think of that mindset of when you're, when you're speaking to your customers, they're going to see through your pitch. If you're not passionate about it, if you don't understand the need, if you don't understand the why. Because when you're talking to customers, they're people. And you, you got to be a people person like Jake. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be more of a people person than Jake than we are. But at this point, what do you guys think? Like, well, what movie do you think of, like, when it comes to sales and customers? I'll say not necessarily the whole movie. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the quote that comes to mind uh, is actually from uh, The Dark Knight, the Batman movie. Oh, here we go. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's a little bit more on maybe product management than it is customers. But uh, yeah. I Googled it so I wouldn't butcher, butcher it. The quote goes, uh, because he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him because he can take it. Because he's not a hero, he's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. And I just, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, that's so good. Because to me, again, that wants and needs, like people that we're, that we have the privilege to solve problems for, they deserve good products. They, they will do what they need to, to get a great product experience somewhere. And a good product person can, can balance those needs. Um, can can play that balance of the hero again you might not be able to address all of the wants but mm -hmm. you're you're always working on their behalf and that like last part of like the silent guardian is like good products are are helping they're monitoring they're they're an active part of maybe it's even the community or the social fabric of that person's life so they yeah. continue that learning they continue to deepen their empathy and they're iterating the product even in ways that a, a user might not readily uh notice or address but they can eventually start to feel like that's a, a really, really deep level of uh, of customer empathy and, and product development is when you can tap into 
uh, furthering the the feelings of a company. Um, the Apple is is the one that comes to mind, and we've talked about in tech a good bit on this. But like people have a, a, a an emotional attachment to the Apple brand, and that doesn't happen by accident. So mm-hmm. again, that's long winded for a, a movie quote, but that's the <laughs> <laughs> Dark Knight is my is is my product manager and and uh, Kate. <laughs> I love it. Yes. The dark night and just like being that vigilante. And some people wanted the dark night. Some people needed the dark night, but um, it was a constant battle. And um, the dark night knew that he was needed at the end of the day. And what was that quote? Like he said that you either die a hero or live long enough to be the villain. That was my favorite quote, by the way. Like, oh my God, that is profound. Like, I think we're all just going to like grow old and be villains of ourselves at the end of the day because we're going to be cranky and old and life sucks. But I'm just I've I've left. Uh, I've left teams before on like really high notes and like building on really successful moments and then uh, circled back to those people later on and them say like, Oh, you know, it's, it's not the same since you left. And I was like, no, I just, I left before I became the villain. Cause there was a lot of really good things going on at that time. But, uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> what about you MC? What, what movie did you pick? Oh man. So here's the the sad part. I can't think of one because most of at this point in time in my life, most of the movies that I watch are are children specific with a, a six and a hey. four year old. <laughs> um but the scene that really sticks out to me, um, and I've told you this before, Tabby, and, and Jake, you don't know this, but um with kids, like at this point in time, like the the EQ is like off the charts in all the different movies that I see. So we mm-hmm. got to towards the end of Toy Story Four and I'm in theaters, I got both kids like on both sides of me, my wife is out of town, so we got all the drinks and the popcorn, we're making a huge mess, and and Woody basically goes to leave Bo Peep, who the whole movie he was trying to find her, right, or half yeah. the movie at least, and he goes to leave to go back to the, the little girl, and Buzz is like, she'll be okay, and he's like, yeah, I know, and he's like, no, no, the little girl will be okay, and Woody like just steps back like, oh snap, I'm about to be like a lost toy, and I'm gonna stay with Bo Peep, I and at that, moment, at that moment, at that moment... I like just went to full blown ugly cry in the movie because my daughters were crying and I'm crying and every- but but you talk about the difference in the customer of the wants and the needs right Woody yep. wants to serve and wants to keep his kid happy but she doesn't need him anymore she's got all these other toys that she's happy with that she's growing with and learning with and now Woody can finally get what he really wants which mm-hmm. is to to be with Bo Peep you know his his love interest yeah. So does that mean Bo Peep was the customer? I don't know. Like, I, and my mind just went in a weird, weird direction. I don't know. Okay. I'm going to leave that for a later episode. So, um, oh boy. first of all, thank you, Jake, for joining us. This was a fantastic episode going into the psychology of the customer. Thanks. Had a good time. And all you listeners out there, thanks for joining us on the, the episode called The Customer. <laughs> um, stay tuned for the next episode coming up. Agile Disrupted. <laughs>